Hey there, and welcome to the Box Office Watch Podcast, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show recapping the weekend of July 30th through August 1st, 2021. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone's doing well out there. Apologies for the delayed episode. I got a little bit lost doing some summer cleaning Monday night, uh, which is all for the better, I guess, since we got a fairly significant news item related to the Delta variant this morning, but we'll get to that later. Uh, now, for the past few weeks, the top headlines has been related to whatever film has just opened at the box office. However, this week, the top story is, in fact, something not directly related to how much mon- films uh, have made in the last week or so, but the most time-honored tradition of American traditions, a lawsuit. So strap yourselves in. This is going to be a bit of a longer episode as we dive into this latest bit of news. So, last Thursday, news broke that Scarlett Johansson, star of the latest MCU film Black Widow, is filing suit against Disney, alleging that her contract was breached since her contract stipulated an exclusive theatrical release for her film, which obviously with the day and date premiere access on Disney Plus was not the case. Uh, The suit further calls out that due to the day and date release of Black Widow on Disney Plus, Ms. Johansson's uh, potential revenue in the form of back-end revenue sharing uh, based on box office receipts as both a producer and an actor in the film was impacted negatively. Uh, in the Wall Street Journal article where this broke, apparently Scarzo had been worried back in 2019 that Disney might put Black Widow on Disney Plus first and reached out to Marvel about this. In March 2019, Marvel Council, Chief Counsel D- Dave Galuzzi said that the release would be in theatrical exclusive model as per the original agreement and that any changes on that plan would be renegotiated with Scarzo to reflect that. Uh, the suit claims that Disney did not in fact reach out to her when they made the plan earlier this year to put move back with to premier access despite her representatives reaching out and so here we are so as we've covered the past few weeks, Black Widow has not been doing well for a Marvel film, even considering the pandemic having an effect. As of this weekend, in the post-2012 MCU, the only film that Black Widow is currently outpacing in its fourth weekend is the original Ant-Man film, uh, with the conclusion many drawing is that it would, had it not been available on the premiere access, people who ended up buying it on premiere access would have gone to see it in theaters, uh, thereby cutting off, uh, especially if people who have gone to see it in future weeks um, who ended up buying it the first weekend, or even repeat fanboys who would have seen it multiple times, uh, and eventually depriving Scarlett Johansson of her back-end residuals. Now, sir, I can feel kind of silly to take one side over the other when it comes to one of the largest multinational corporations in history versus one of the richest people in Hollywood, who both will have more money than I'm likely to ever to make in my lifetime. But call me silly, I guess, because... I, and it seems many of the others, are with Scarzo out here. Um, If only because not negotiating a contract before breaking it is kind of a silly thing to do on Disney's part, and that's before my own personal feelings about how I may or may not feel about being a fan of Premier Access model in general. Uh, talking through this a bit of bit of news in a few places online, there are a couple of thoughts that I, that I that kind of coalesced around. First, uh, in addition to being kind of crappy on Disney's part, um, it's dumb as hell uh, if only because we already saw this coming with the whole HBO Max Warner Brothers fiasco last December. If you remember there, aside from Wonder Woman 84's team of Gal Gadot and Patty Jenkins, most talent who had films affected by the day and date simultaneous releases were not happy that they were not contacted in advance of the announcement. Eventually, Warner made rounds with their talent and came to terms with them uh, with the most common agreement I've heard about is to treat all 
all of the simultaneous releases as though they performed at the highest level of box office performance uh, and then paying uh, out the back-end dividends to talent uh, with that assumption, even if that wasn't the case. Uh, Surrey would cost them, a, estimates are in the $200 million to $250 million range uh, for the year, but at least no one is suing them anymore. Uh, the solution to all of that was right in front of Disney with what they had to do for Scarlett Johansson here. They even changed their future contracts for other Disney talent uh, to account for the precise possibility that films that and movies that were originally supposed to come out in uh, the, in theaters would end up getting put on Disney+. Plus. Um, so if they're going to do that, why not go back and check your pre-existing contacts and renegotiate those? Secondly, I saw some people saying it was kind of you know weird and, and a little bit whiny, uh, sour grapes for Scarlett Johansson to do this only after the film came out, and we saw how it bombed. Um, so to that end, I think for a suit to happen, and correct me if I'm wrong if any lawyers are out there, but for a suit to be to be valid, you have to be able to present damages. Uh, so it's not like she could have done so until the damages, in this case lost revenue, were seen. A similar case is actually from earlier this summer. It was rumored that John Krasinski and Emily Blunt were poised to sue Paramount after it shortened their theatrical window from the standard three-month period to 45 days, uh, not even having being a simultaneous release on some sort of streaming platform. Um, that being said, because Acquired Place 2 popped off early on the summer, it's currently about $30 million behind the original and about $70 million uh, globally behind it, uh, the $30 million is domestic, uh, which is not bad for a sequel. Um, they ended up dropping that plan for a suit, uh, which, you know, again, I speculate is mostly because they don't want to ruin the relationship with Paramount, and also likely they wouldn't be able to prove damages in this case. Now, speaking of relationships not being damaged, this also likely uh, was enabled, this whole suit was enabled by Scarlett Johansson not really being set to reappear in any upcoming MCU films. I mean, as far as Disney goes, she was which he was set to produce a film about the Tower of Terror ride, but that seems to be a waste off anywho, so I don't think it's too much skin off her back that uh, she's not working on that anymore. Um, really, there are very few actors or actresses out there who could feasibly have gone toe-to-toe with the mouse, but having paid her dues here, uh, she doesn't really likely have much to prove or to be owed to Disney at this point for her career. She could easily find work at another studio if she really wanted to. Now, the other point which I spe- which I personally speculate on is this is probably partly a move to force Disney to be a little bit more transparent with the premier access streaming numbers. While we didn't get the announcement, while we did get the announcement that you know they made sixty million globally the first weekend, we haven't really gotten much since, at least about Black Widow. Um, in Disney's response to the suit, which we'll get to in a minute because that's a whole other can of forms why Disney looks bad here, um, they said that the Premier Access distribution model would allow her her compensation to go up uh, beyond whatever her base fee was. Now that seems dubious to me at best for a couple of reasons. First, it doesn't seem that there were any profit sharing in the original contract, and if Scarlett Johansson to believe there was no renegotiations for distribution sharing with uh, Premier Access numbers. And even if Disney was planning on paying her out with Premier Access numbers, um, there is no visibility into that, right? Like, we have no idea how much money it's making. It could be made a lot. Most likely, based on all the numbers that we can get from Samba TV and the like, it likely wasn't that much in terms of Premier Access. Um, so yeah, so you know, even if there were something to get from the thirty dollars that that it would have made, it looks like it wouldn't be that much, and it looks like it would be less than what it would have made uh, in comparison to other MCU films. So you know, I think potentially uh, this may be the most significant effect of this lawsuit, um, aside from them potentially 
double checking their contracts in the future. I think in the long term, if this forces Disney uh, to be more transparent with their streaming numbers on top of, you know, uh, working something into the contracts, that could have ripple effects where, you know, maybe other uh, big talent stars who end up having this stuff come out in Premier Access or even even if it's not coming out directly on Premier Access, but maybe Premier Access in the long term ends up getting a cut of the rev share um, if it comes to Disney Plus within the sort of theatrical window for other big stars. So uh, we have no idea what that looks like. If We don't know if there's going to ripple effect to other studios if that kind of becomes a norm if Disney has to do it. Um, as a box office note, I would personally love to get the streaming numbers for Disney as a result of all this, uh, if anything. Uh, finally, I got a question from someone about why don't studios just pay a talent a higher fee, flat fee up front and keep all of the back-end profits so they don't have to deal with all of this you know, back-end payment nonsense, right? Let the studio take all the risk, uh, the, 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 the cast get paid up front, and everyone's happy. Well, the reason for this is that in sort, studios want lower-cost projects up front and only want to pay talent uh, for successful films. Essentially, for talent, this acts as like a, an incentive motivator for them to, you know, you ever heard the term like, oh, he's just doing it for the paycheck. Right, it's like a you usually describe an actor who does a performance that's not so great. It's kind of a wooden performance, but hey, they're getting paid some upfront fees, so they don't really care how they're acting. They already got their paycheck. Well, in this case, if you want actors to give their best shot and do everything they can to help make a film a success, um, you go with you know giving them the uh, the lower upfront cost. In addition, you know for talent who really do believe in their projects, they will also take that upfront cost in order to help bring that upfront cost down, uh, so that studios you know we'll see a more palatable number, right? Like if somebody had to pay, if a studio had to choose between, you know, making a $20 million film or a $100 million film, but even if the $20 million film, they may have to share some of the revenue in the future, that's only $20 million that they have to pay off of the bat, um, as opposed to $100 million investments where they are not sure will or may not be a success, right? The bar to success is much higher for a $100 million film because of how much marketing will go into it, as opposed to a $20 million fee, which maybe will have a lower marketing budget, but, um, you know, it's, again, less co- less risk for them and if it ends up popping off, hey, they end up and they end up, they end up having to paying up a higher, you know, what they would if, like. If you have to end up paying more back and stuff, then they would have just paid up front. The, the studios don't care because it's only a fraction of whatever the film ends up making in terms of revenue. Whereas if a film had like a higher upfront cost and ends up not being successful, that's a much worse case scenario for the studio. Uh, some other films aside from Black Widow, where this has happened historically, um, A Quiet Place 2, just from earlier this summer, as we noted before, um, most of Quentin Tarantino's films are like this. Sam Jackson, Leonardo DiCaprio are not cheap. Uh, the Joker, um, Channing Tatum's projects, Bloomhouse is, uses this model to a great effect to help uh, make those super cheap horror films. And even in the MCU films with earlier earlier projects, I believe with uh, Age of Ultron, um, I believe, and and I, I think uh, some R- other RDJ films, uh, Robert Downey Jr. Um, you know, did, were able to make it, uh, were able to keep the cost down because of his otherwise high high. Um, his high ref share um, being cut because of him taking a ref share down at the end. Uh, some other details here worth noting: uh, technically, Scarlett Johansson is not suing uh, Marvel. Uh, the or they're suing Disney, and they're not suing them for um, they're not suing her them for a break of contract, but rather for inducing Marvel to break her contract, which is technically a little bit different. I think what I've read on some opinion pieces on this that this is mostly to. Uh, avoid maybe perhaps an arbitration clause uh, that might be in uh, the in 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 the Marvel suit. So uh, we'll see if that ends up being if it ends up going to arbitration or not. Um, and then secondly, there's also a technical argument from the Disney side. If you're curious, that uh, the 
the contracts that they that they released specifically said that um, the film would get a, a wide theatrical release of at least fifteen hundred theaters or more, but it does not explicitly say exclusive in theaters. Uh, so that could be a loophole. Well, because the legalese did not say an exclusive theatrical release, because Black Widow released in what like four thousand theaters. Um, technically, Disney did keep their end of the bargain in that front. Um, it's going to come down to the judge to determine whether or not the exclusive was implied and understood, since that's the industry norm or not. Okay, so that's the initial suit from Scarlett Johansson, and her team is basically to basically get Disney uh, for breaking her theatrical-only agreement for Black Widow without renegotiating anything and costing her back-end revenue uh, since it didn't have the legs to go the distance, um, and it could potentially force Disney to release those numbers uh, in the future. Now, Disney ended up responding kind of in the worst way possible, basically saying ScarJo was, quote, being sad and distressing in her callous disregard for the horrific and prolonged global effects of COVID-19. Like, okay, Disney, sir, part of Black Widow's lack of success may be people not wanting to go see films and theaters. Maybe Disney Plus is a great pro-consumer move in that it, you know, provides the film kind of indefinitely for a relatively cheap cost, especially for families. But basically, an ad hominem attack on a on star who helped grow your franchise, um, and you know, basically, you know, yeah, you're basically not even saying that. Oh, yeah, we're not we're totally didn't do this. Um, well, I guess they did technically, but you know, the the focus of the of the point being that oh, Scarlett Johansson is, is a bad person for not considering the glow, the COVID nineteen and the way we we treated her film basically. Um, that is like really silly, basically. Um, and on top of that. You know, they even included in the statement that, you know, she received a $20 million acting fee um, on top of, you know, what, as they said, what might eventually come from a further revenue from Premier Access, which, again, we have no idea into what those numbers are. Uh, it's just bad manners, bad, you know, bad policy to include an actor's uh, performance fee uh, in the, in like, uh, that's normally a private thing, uh, to put that out in the open there, basically, right? Um, so, yeah, that's like a bad move on, the, on Disney's part just to put her contract out there. Uh, so yeah, going after character is, is, isn't it, uh, the CAA creative artist agency, her talent agency definitely called him out for that, uh, which is pretty big. If CAA is putting their neck on the line to basically call out Disney like this, uh, there was definitely trouble brewing behind the scenes, potentially, I think on the scale of the 2007, 2008 writer's strike, uh, writer's guild strike, which honestly has a lot of similar causes to what's going on now. Namely, you know, the 2007-2008 strike was uh, over arguments between the studios and the guild about rev share of new media, i.e. streaming on internet, as well as home media uh, and DVD sales and how much, you know, they, they, that's getting there. So, you know, Scarlett Johansson is, you know, basically suing that she's not getting her, uh, her ref sale because of, you know, the, the day and date releases. Uh, while it's not explicitly about her wanting day and date release revenue share, um, this could kind of implicitly be seen as like a, you know, a, a bellwether moment when stu when uh, actors and talent will start wanting more of those back end streaming deals. Uh, so, you know, this could potentially, if, if, if the CAA is putting their neck on the line, they must have a lot of support from, you know, maybe their other members and what who are also fed up with this. Um, and so if you see a strike in the next year or so because of all this, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, now, there are rumors that Emma Stone is also contemplating her own lawsuit, uh, basically over the same situation uh, with the film Cruella coming out. Um, now, this is still just rumors from Matt Bologna of The Hollywood Reporter, but still be pretty big if true. Um, what 
may hold, I think, Miss Stone back from doing so is that she does have other Disney projects in the works, including Cruella 2. So we'll have to wait and see exactly how that turns out. Um, I also don't think she has quite as much resources as Scarlett Johansson might. Um, similarly, depending on how the Jungle Cruise does over the next couple of weeks, we may see Emily Blunt make a move as well to sue, um, given especially given that she was willing to do so for A Quiet Place 2. Uh, curiously, though, it seems that the Disney has settled everything with The Rock, uh, her co-star in Jungle Cruise. So um, before they moved the film to premiere access so if they, it turns out they did not make the same concessions to Emily Blunt since I think The Rock was a producer I don't know if Emily Blunt was um, that would kind of just be sexism at this point where it's like three of their biggest uh, female leads are, are just about to see over the three consecutive films from them so Anyway, how did Disney get to this point? Um, I mean, you, sir, you could point to Disney just kind of having a history of screwing people over with their contracts and such, uh, such as with Alan Dean Foster over not getting royalties for the novelizations of his Star Wars film. The films, uh, which reportedly this past May finally was taken care of. Um, and there's also Disney being so entrenched in the legal system that they single-handedly have saved IP law over the past century that they felt they could get away with pretty much anything. Uh, but reports for how people internal to Disney feel about this kind of tell a larger story. Uh, Kevin Feige, head of all things Marvel, is, quote, angry and embarrassed over all of this, which is not surprising given that reportedly he went to bat uh, for Scarlett Johansson and for the film to want to get it a theatrical exclusive release. Uh, given that he had put his fe- his previously put his future at Disney on state on the line over not wanting to have to deal with Ike Perlmutter, who reportedly was a big reason why Black Widow didn't get a film up to this point, um, how Disney ended up moving Kevin Feige to report directly to Alan Horn instead of to, uh, to Ike, it'd be curious to see if this trend continues and if Kevin Feige ends up sticking around with Disney if this is a continuing trend of how they end up treating their, their biggest talent. Um, Bob Iger, chairman of Disney's board and former CEO, CEO is quote mortified over this as well and thinks that the company bungled it, uh, which you know leaves the other Bob, current CEO Bob Chapek, as kind of the main culprit here. It seems. Uh- now, Chappick is known to have come up through the theme parks division and reportedly has a reputation for being a bit of a budget slasher penny pincher, right? Opting to focus on, on turning quarterly profits by cutting a lot of costs in order to please investors instead of necessarily building toward a long-term strategy, um, of which alienating your talent is not a great idea. Uh, what more, reportedly, the distribution of the film was handled by the engineer-turned-investment banker Kareem Daniel, who, like Chappick, does not have a lot of history in talent relations, might be the biggest flaw as a potential CEO of an entertainment company. Um, the fact that this even got to a suit as opposed to being settled before it went public, uh, you know, uh, signals though some major issues with talent behind the scenes not being super happy with Disney. Um, other sources have kind of soft confirmed that that's more or less true with uh, various high-profile talent not being as happy. Uh, ultimately, I think some blame can be placed on Bob Iger for not handling his, his successor plan well. Not that he's you know entirely innocent of not screwing over other talent, just that you know he's good at he he's, he at the very least is good uh, at managing it so it doesn't become a big PR disaster like this one does. However, you know if more suits do pile up in the future and Disney's rep takes a significant hit because of this, I wouldn't be surprised to see Chapek's term as CPM cut short. 
Now, if it's to believe, there is a rumor that Sapic is meant to be a Fall Guy type of CEO to take the brunt of a lot of bad PR decisions before being fired and eventually someone else is going to be brought on after the unpopular work has been done. Uh, we'll see how that pans out, though. Uh, at least for now, Free Guy and Sanxi, um, I think it's too close to their releases to have Premier Access suddenly thrust upon them, and the Eternals marketing at the Olympics seems to suggest it's going to be theaters only, though who knows with the, with the Delta variant spreading how that's going to turn out. That brings us to the next big headline this week, uh, which, of course, is dealing with the ever-present Delta variant. Um, as cases continue to balloon across the country, with Texas and Florida making up one-third of all cases in the U.S. due to their low vaccination rates, uh, more and more companies are starting to delay coming back to the office and requiring vaccinations among their employees and even their customers. Uh, while Disney and Netflix are requiring them for their employees and for talent during production, uh, no confirmation yet for any of the major movie chains that they'll have the same policy for their employees or for their customers. However, that may soon functionally be the case, at least in New York City. Uh, this morning, NYC announced their version of a vaccine passport is going to take effect in mid-September, with indoor dining and entertainment, including movie theaters, requiring patrons to show proof of a negative PCR test or of a vaccination before entering, uh, either by showing your COVID vaccine card or by uh, using some sort of vaccine passport app, such as the New York State... Excelsior app or another one that they're currently developing. Now, uh, the CDC... Um now, it's, it, this is the first city to announce this, though several other cities, particularly in California, have reinstated their indoor mask mandate, so I wouldn't be surprised if this spreads. The CDC also has stated that they are re-encouraging the mask mandate uh, for places with high, uh, not, not enforcing, but they're recommending that masks, masks be worn in places with high uh, rates of transmission, which is most of the southern United States um, and, and a lot of California as well. Now, setting aside the question of whether or not this is government overreach and the civil rights issue, which I'm not really interested in that whole debate, honestly. Someone else can take care of that. Uh, I'm, I'm more interested in the predicted box office effect. Now, my gut reaction is that, you know, this will probably impact box office numbers negatively. Uh, when France announced their health pass a few weeks back, daily box office numbers instantly dropped 70% uh, because, again, they had to they required that in order to go to a movie theater, you need to either be vaccinated or have a negative PCR test, and people just weren't willing to go through that hassle uh, in order to see a movie. So the question is, will this New York mandate have the same effect and, crush, and, and cause the bo domestic box office to crash? I have reason to be a little bit more optimistic, though there still will, I think, be some effect. Uh, first off, New York City does have a higher rate of vaccination than in France. As of the numbers I can find, France was at about a 43% vaccination rate uh, when this was announced. Here in New York City, that number is closer to 55% and goes up to 66% when you look at only adults. So that's for fully vaccinated, not just having only one, one of the two shots, um, aside from J&J. Um, so, you know, in certain boroughs, even in Manhattan specifically, uh, that vaccination, that fully vaccinated rate goes up to 75%, which, you know, includes myself. So in New York City, at least, this won't impact as many people uh, because, frankly, three-fourths of the population in Manhattan uh, and two-thirds kind of generally are already vaccinated. Now, secondly, this goes into effect six weeks from now, middle of September, as opposed to instantly. Um, that's based, one of the big criticisms of the France uh, and the kind of the EU health pass is that it was kind of implemented overnight and no one really got any warnings. Businesses didn't really get any warnings for this. So people are kind of aware that this is going to be coming. Um, that's more than enough time for anyone who really does care about going out to the movie theaters or whatnot to get one if they really want to. So that kind of like that sudden talk of, oh, I haven't gotten my vaccine yet. Well, okay, I guess I'm going to, I, I want to go 
see a movie. I guess I have to go get one now. You have time to do that for, if for whatever reason you haven't gotten it yet. Uh, thirdly, New York, while one of the bigger markets for movie revenue for sure, is still only part of the overall domestic box, box, box office. Even if New York City alone saw a drop because of this, it would only be part of the larger pie. Now, if California were to implement these vaccine restrictions, then, well, you know, they also do have a decent rate of, rate of vaccination. I believe 70% of all residents vaccinated are in, in San Francisco are done now, 77% uh, of those 12 and up, and then 63% of all Los Angeles residents, uh, eligible residents, are currently vaccinated. So, for better or worse, at the box office, it's also unlikely that Texas or Florida, the only other big population centers of the country that would really affect the box office materially, uh, will, will implement a vaccine passes, highly unlikely they'll do so. So, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, even if there was a slight drop in New York, it would kind of be diluted by, just by the rest of the country going on. Uh, nevertheless, weekly PSA at this point that vaccines do work, they are effective, and that uh, if you are able to medically get one, I would strongly encourage you to do so. Um, even if there are a minuscule number of breakthrough cases relative to the number of people who get vaccinated, um, and even if more minuscule proportion of those breakthrough cases ever become serious enough to get vac to, the, to get hospitalized um, due to the vaccine working, um, seriously, please go see get a vaccine. I want to be able to see Dune in theaters. Now, the other flip perspective on this is that while there may be a portion of the population who are stubborn and who won't get a vaccine and will thus miss out on going to movie theaters as a result, families and others who would have wanted to go to the movie theaters but don't want to be around potentially unvaccinated individuals can now have that peace of mind of going. Assuming that this vaccine, of course, does not this vaccine passport does not apply to kids below 12 who cannot be vaccinated still. Uh, Dr. Fauci does say that even though uh, we should be cautious that we are going to see things get worse because of the Delta variant, uh, they should not expect, we should not expect to see the U.S. entirely shut down like we did last year, uh, which would be the worst option for movie theaters for sure. Now, this will most likely impact the September and October slate of films. Uh, Sang-Chi is on Labor Day weekend. Venom Let There Be Carnage at the end of September. Hotel Transylvania and 4 and uh, Adam's Family 2 are early October. No Time to Die on October 8th. Uh, Halloween Kills the 15th. Dune on the 22nd. And Last Night in Soho on the 29th. So those are the films most likely to be impacted by this, if at all. Um, now, God, please let me be able to see Dune in theaters. Uh, we do, however, have our first film being pulled from the schedule due to the Delta variant fears. Uh, Paramount's Clifford the Big Red Dog is being pulled from the schedule uh, of September 17th. Now, this is probably because since it's a kid-focused film and a lot of the audience would be people who are under 12 and likely could not be vaccinated, it's likely that parents are choosing to not bring their kids to the movie theaters um, because they can't get vaccinated. So um, that's probably why you know Paramount would probably do so, especially since they could just put it on the Paramount Plus at this point um, as another option. Interestingly, there are two other kid films in this time period, Hotel Transylvania and Adam's Family. Now, however, those are from studios that don't have a big streaming platform, or at least in MGM's cases for Adam's Family, not yet since the uh, Amazon deal hasn't gone through yet. So they don't really have as an easy out in order to, to put it on, theater, on streaming services, which would be more beneficial for the kiddo, kiddos who have to stay at home. And also, you know, these two are kind of, you know, horror-related films, so, you know, it's a perfect time for releasing them in October. I don't really see any other option than just kind of pushing ahead and just hoping for the best for these. Now, there are rumors that Halloween Kills may get a sort of theatrical window from Universal and go straight to Netflix on October 31st, which would be another interesting solution to all of this as well. Uh, never mind that NBC has their own streaming platform. Uh, in any case, you know the Delta variant and uh, the uh, and and the whole you know Scarlett Johansson uh, suit. Those are the two big stories this week. There are a couple of smaller ones to dig into, but first let's get to the box office numbers for this weekend. 
In first place, we have Disney's Jungle Cruise, which I mentioned before, opened to $35 million in 4,310 theaters per theater average of $8,125 toward the higher end of the $20 to $40 million estimate from box office pros. In addition, it made reportedly $27.6 million in 47 international markets for a theatrical take so far of $62.6 million. Add to that $30 million that Disney reported in global premiere access of spending and globally, it opened up to $92.6 million, again against the $200 million budget, not including advertising. According to Samba TV, 23% of, $23 million of that $30 million premiere access comes from the United States. Now, looking pre-pandemic for a comparable film, we could look at the Jumanji films, which similarly feature Dwayne Johnson in the family-friendly romp through the jungle. However, I think that's uh, not a great comparable, since that opened over the lucrative holiday period and really overperformed, just kind of out of nowhere. So I don't think that's going to really be it. Um, Rampage, his 2018 film based on a similar retro property uh, with some jungle elements, might be a bit of a better fit. That one opened it to $35 million also and led its way out to $100 million with about 2.85x legs, uh, which seems plausible for Jungle Cruise. I think the real so I guess the real question for Jungle Cruise will be whether or not it makes it back to uh, to 100 million dollars domestically. Though that being said, Rampage was made for a budget of 120 million dollars as opposed to 200 million from uh, for Jungle Cruise, so not quite as great a scenario for for this most recent film. Another comparable might be Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, also based on a Disney theme park ride. Now, the first one, all the way back in 2003, had a surprisingly low open at $46 million, but it was a different box office, and frankly, uh, it also kind of went out of, it was a success out of nowhere, had a stunning 6.55x multiplier, only dropping 27% in its second weekend, never dropping week over week more than 35% over its first three months. I don't think Jungle Cruise is going to be doing that at all. Um, all the other pirate films opened a little bit higher uh, because of the good word of mouth. You know, the second film opened to 135 million. Too, the worst performing fifth film in 2017 opened to 62 million dollars. But they had more typical drops than the original film, uh, which averaged out to about 2.8x. So that I think seems reasonable given what we saw with Rampage. However, I don't think this is going to go to the distance, one, because I think Premier Access is going to definitely impact the, the drops on this one. Um, and two, you know, again, the pandemic is also eating pe- people's appetite to go out as well. So who knows? Maybe the family-friendly nature of this film compared to Black Widow might help it leg out a little bit better. Um, apparently, The Rock is having a sequel meeting this weekend with Disney, so I guess we'll see if that ends up getting greenlit. Now, in second place, we have Universal's newest film from M. Night Shyamalan, Old, in its second weekend, dropping 60% to $6.8 million in 33,379 theaters, a per theater average of $2,031. Domestic total is $30 million plus $18 million abroad for $48 million total against this $18 million budget. So, while that's a fairly steep drop, uh, probably due to a combination of subpar word of mouth with the Delta variant limiting desire to see it overseas, it looks like it's going to be profitable at least uh, old also comes out the PVOD this week uh, which I believe should be basically that exact 15 day window um, uh, that, that deal that Universal has of opening below 15 million dollars in third place, we have another newcomer, the Art House film from A24, Green Knight, uh, starring Dev Patel, directed by Dave Lowry. I actually saw this Thursday night and contributed to a $6.7 million opening in 2,790 theaters, per through the average of $2,418. So I'll give my thoughts on this film over at the end of the episode. Uh, we didn't really have a long-range forecast for this one, but it is higher than A24's Zola, which opened earlier this, this year. Um, going back to pre-pandemic, it does beat out the very atmospherically similar The 
Lighthouse, though that one did open in a smaller number of theaters. It did also fall a bit short of Uncut Gems' biggest weekend for a similar number of theaters. Uh, the budget for this film looks to be about $15 million or so, though reportedly A24 has already made all that money back uh, with the distribution licenses. Uh, so, you know, I guess that's one of the benefit of these prestige low-budget art house films. Uh, the reception on Citizen War is a C+, with 52% of the audience uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, though, again, as a critic-focused film, this was definitely a 90% there, um, which is to be expected. Uh, Midsommar was a similar film, uh, with C-plus cinema score, 83% critics, and 63% on Rotten Tomatoes. It opened to $6.5 million and ended up legging it out to $27 million with 4.2x legs, so uh, maybe Green Eye can do that, but in any case, it's profitable at this point already. Uh, in fourth place, we have Black Widow, which we talked about more than enough already. Uh, Black Widow dropped 45% in its fourth weekend in 3,360 theaters to $6.4 million for per theater average of $1,926. As of this weekend, it's made $167 million domestically, which goes against the post-2012 MCU films, uh, outpacing only the first Ant-Man, which made $147 million by its fourth, fourth weekend. Though that is also behind Ant-Man and the Wasp, $183 million. In another comparison, in F9's fourth weekend this year, we saw a 33% drop and a $7.6 million take, again, suggesting that this is dropping steeper than normal. Globally, Black Widow has made $176.5 million in the international markets so far, which puts its global total at $344.5 million. Finally, in fifth place, we have Matt Damon's new film from Focus Features, Stillwater. It made $5.1 million in 2,531 theaters, per theater average of $2,050. Pretty much in the middle of its $2-$7 million opening estimate predicted by uh, Box Office Pro. Its budget was about $20 million or so. Hopefully, its foreign deals will get over the line, just as with Green Knight. Cinema score is pretty mediocre at B-, and has about 75% for both critics and audience on Rotten Tomatoes. So, going to be pretty average drops, I think think here. Outside the top five, generally we have some pretty bad holds in addition to old uh, due to the Delta variant and questionable quality of the recent films. Uh, Space Jam dropped 50, 56% in its third weekend, now sitting at $60 million. Snake Eyes in its second weekend dropped 70%, down to $4 million. Uh, now, however, on the other hand, the Cruella, uh, which arguably is one of the better received films with a solid a cinema score um, has the best legs of the year so far with a 4x multiplier uh, making 85 million dollars so far on the opening on a budget on the opening weekend of about 21 million dollars um, even better than a quiet place too in fact according to one user on the box office subreddit this is the leggiest memorial day release since 2000 in addition, Godzilla vs. Kong officially ended its run at just north of 100.5 million dollars with a 3.12x multiplier now, overall, total box office went up this week, if only slightly, to $78 million. Uh, the upcoming weekend has only one major wide release, James Gunn, The Suicide Squad, which also has a day and date release on HBO Max on the Thursday. Uh, the estimate from box office pros range from 35 to $60 million. Uh, based on anemic pre-sales, some are being really pessimistic and expecting a lower $25 million opening weekend. Now, that being said, there is some hope. The film opened in five markets this weekend to $7 million, with the UK seeing $4.7 million and France $1.6 million. In comparison, Birds of Prey opened to $3.7 million in the UK last, uh, two, last year um, and $2.6 million in France, though that was without the vaccine pass in place. Um, 
it did split the market uh, in the UK in the in uh, the the France uh, with the Jungle Cruise, uh, which opened the same weekend. Um, ratings wise, the Suicide Squad does have a ninety six percent from critics, which is the highest of any single DC film yet. Um, add to it that it has. All it has to do is to beat Wonder Woman 1984's $16 million opening to beat the curse of DC films having a lower opening weekend than the previous since Batman vs. Superman opened. Realistically, though, I'd hopefully aim for it to open to beat the similarly R-rated DC ensemble film Birds of Prey, though this one does have a higher budget than Birds of Prey, so we'll see how that pans out for them. I do have my ticket for opening night, uh, so you can expect to hear that report from me next week. Now, speaking of international numbers, looking at some specific markets in Korea, uh, the thriller Escape from Mogadishu, based on a true story about North and South Korean diplomats in Somalia trying to escape a civil uprising, uh, uh, tops the box office weekend there, making 4.9 million US dollars, the largest opening for a local film in a long time. Um, I believe this one is actually going to be opening in the States in a limited release uh, from Wellgo Entertainment. Uh, India's largest multiplex chain, uh, PVR Cinemas, reopened with all of its staff vaccinated. Um, and in Japan, Mamoru Hosoda's latest animated film, Bell, topped the box office for a third weekend in a row. Uh, so far, it's made $30 million U.S. dollars there to date. And I also missed this last weekend, but also in its 41st weekend, Demon Slayer popped back into the top 10, which is hella bizarre for that to happen. Now, in China, we don't have dates for Black Widow or Jungle Cruise just yet, but we do have some weekly box office numbers. Uh, in first place, we have a crime action film Raging Fire, opening to number one, $37 million. In second place, the youth drama uh, Upcoming Summer opened at $20 million. In third place, the animated sequel White Snake 2 Green Snake opened, added $10 million to its $57 million winning total. In fourth place, the drama Chinese Doctor added $5 million to its $193 million running total. And wrapping up in fifth place, animated film Bacon Bear 2 Gold Agent made another $1.5 million, bringing its total up to $8.5 million. Now, some other miscellaneous news items uh, before getting to my review of The Green Knight. Uh, the Venice Film Festival announced their full lineup last week uh, for awards season. I, competition, I would say the big ones to keep an eye out on are The Power of the Dog and The Hand of God. Uh, out of competition, we have Dune, The Last Duel, and Last Night in Soho making their debuts. Uh, Sundance just announced that they will back in, be back in 2022, requiring in-person attendance to be uh, vaccinated in order to attend. Uh, in Canada, they also reopened their borders to the U.S. recently, which should help Toronto International Film Festival's in-person events in September. That being said, both festivals will have a strong virtual component with virtual premieres happening after the in-person ones. A slew of Netflix news, Netflix's Marilyn Monroe biopic starring Anna de Armas looks like it's getting pushed back to 2022. It was reportedly supposed to premiere at Venice but got pulled, um, probably because the reports are that it's too sexually explicit for Netflix. Uh, the, the, I guess the director wanted to have like a really artsy artsy film, um, but that's why it ended, was being pulled, it ended up being pulled from the Venice Film Festival. Um, let's see, uh, Netflix, which rescued the Paris Theater in New York City, the largest uh, single-screen theater in Manhattan, um, has reopened the theater uh, this weekend fully uh, with a comedy 40-year-old version showing. And then Netflix CEO has said he wants to do everything he can to get Chris Nolan to make his next film with Netflix. Chris Nolan, lover of movie theaters and hater of streaming, coming to Netflix. What an idea. Uh, I'll give him. I'll tell him exactly what he needs to do. He just needs to basically give Chris Nolan a, a, a traditional theatrical exclusive release model for whatever next film he does and whatever crazy budget he wants. 
Uh, let's see. An announcement for the 80s, 80s nostalgics out there. Uh, the Transformers movie from 1986 is going to be back in theaters for its 35th anniversary on September 26th and 28th, courtesy of Fathom Events. And then, funnily enough, uh, Scarlett Johansson's lawsuit was not the only one filed last week. Uh, Gerard Butler, who started in 2013's uh, Olympus Has Fallen, is alleging, f- alleging fraud against producers Millennium Media, saying they owe him $10 million. The long and short of this one is that the classic Hollywood accounting are basically hiding some portion of the actual revenue from movie from box office receipts um, so they don't have to pay him out, uh, which is more of a bit of fraud and breach of contract, which is the case of uh, Scarlett Johansson. Apparently, Millennium Media is known in the industry to be pretty shady when it comes to the financing, so it doesn't seem to be too much of a surprise here. But I think this and Scarzo lawsuit are related in that if these you know stars, one definitely bigger than the other, but if these two you know main 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 characters are getting screwed out of their paychecks from the producers and their studios, uh, what about the even smaller guys down the food chain who don't have that clout to you know make all of their uh, make all of their grievances um, public to everyone? On that cheery note, my review for the just as cheery film The Green Knight. So off the bat, this is very much an art house film in the weirdest sense possible. Uh, director David Lowery is perhaps most known for his supernatural drama A Ghost Story, starring Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara, or perhaps his failed live-action adaptation of P- Disney's The Pete's Dragon. Now, it's based on the poem of the Arthurian canon Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Spoilers for a 14th century poem here. Uh, the original story is that on one Christmas day, the, knights, the Green Knight appears before the Knights of the Round Table, challenging them to a game. Uh, he'll let one of them present strike him once, and in a year's time, he'll strike them in the same way they struck him, with the winner getting to keep uh, the knight's axe. Uh, Gwen takes him up in his challenge, beheading the knight, but then he ends up taking the, picking up the body, ends up picking the head off the ground and putting it back on again, and tells Gwen, "Hey, come come at me, bro!" In a year, uh, a year later, Gwen does take him up in the challenge and uh, goes on his journey. Uh, the original poem doesn't really detail all of the adventures except for like the last crucial one, which I'm not gonna spoil this part. It's kind of crucial to the entire story. Uh, that being said, um, you know. It is kind of a story about you know honesty and honor and what it means to like you know be a knight, right? And those definitely, those definitely are themes I think within throughout this entire piece here. Um, the adventures in the poem again are not fully explained, uh, but David Lowry does kind of elaborate on them here um, with some distinct Arthurian mythology and symbolism present throughout. Now, Arthurian mythology is pretty weird in and of itself. You just read about it and. Uh, he definitely captured that weirdness in here, um, which Def Patel also really just did a good job of, of selling as well. Um, as far as the construction of the film, it is very, very slow-paced. Not a short one either. It clocks at two hours and ten minutes. I'll admit I actually dozed off in the theater once or twice. It was just how slow and deliberate the film and the camera moved along. That being said, it's a very interesting film uh, because of this. I think that in the end, it most reminds me of the other A24 film uh, with a, from a few years back, The Lighthouse. Uh, both, while the readout is not on black and white, both of them do have a very haunting atmosphere, both in thought composition, uh, with Lowry using the medieval architecture and force setting to frame his characters interestingly with, with harsh overhead lighting. Um, and in, in addition, there's also a haunting choral score backing up the film. Plus, there's a ton of symbolism throughout... With, you know, with isolated men and those somewhat warped mindsets reflected on screen. And yeah, male ejaculation, uh, which is, you know, um, okay, that's a thing. Um, 
Oh, I think this film also kind of reminds me visually of not an A24 film, but uh, kind of like the cinematography darling uh, Columbus, which is beautifully shot, also extremely slowly paced. Not one for uh, one who does kind of like is not one who just wants to appreciate, you know, good cinematography. Um, Now, you know, I think in all seriousness, I think this one has a lot going for it Uh, when it comes to symbolism and interpretation, especially, again, the more familiar you are with the themes and motifs of Arthurian mythology. Um, even the somewhat open-ended conclusion of the implementation kind of adds to the film. Uh, now, I won't feed; it doesn't feed you any of that interpretation on a silver platter. You're gonna have to kind of work for it. Uh, you may think you're kind of dumb, like I did after watching the film. But if you do watch it, I do encourage you to go online and kind of read about different interpretations. The uh, Our Movies subreddit discussion thread has some really good interpretations and some symbolism you may have missed. Uh, there is a post post-credits uh, scene you might want to check out, so stick around in the stick around for the credits after that. Um, overall, I will say I give this one a 4 out of 5 in terms of being an intentional piece of art that has something it wants to say, but it's not going to be the everyone taste for sure, especially if you want the more visceral uh, action-packed adventure, which this is not. Uh, with that review, I think that is a wrap for this episode. Shoot me ideas for what else I said cover via email at boxofficewatchpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at B-O-Watch Podcast. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review, or at the very least, tell a friend any of that helps. If you're feeling extra generous, consider supporting us on Patreon, which let me make not only this show, but all the other podcasts I work on. Links to all that will be in our show notes. Uh, numbers used in the show come from thenumbers.com. Our intro and outro music come from Kevin MacLeod. You can find his stuff at incompetech.filmmusic.io. Edited and productions provided by Ninja Boy Media. Until next time, this has been the Box Office Watch Podcast. Remember, our watch goes on. Yeah.